Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with Mindy Capaldi, editor of the collection Teaching Mathematics Through Games, published by the Mathematical Association of America Press in 2020. This is an edited volume in the AMS MAA series on classroom resource materials and comprises 17 chapters that incorporate largely analog games into lessons on a range of topics, including probability, set theory, and game theory, and perhaps more surprisingly, calculus, abstract algebra, and introduction to proofs, as well as quantitative literacy, history of mathematics, and mathematics education. The text is replete with illustrations, and the book's website provides a plethora of supplementary materials for instructors and other interested readers. I'm fortunate to be speaking with the editor, and I look forward to learning even more about the book. Mindy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about the book. It was it was a labor of love. I want to hear very much more about it. Um, but first, could you give a brief introduction to yourself and your own mathematical background? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am an associate professor of mathematics and statistics at Valparaiso University. I, I got my PhD at North Carolina State University. Um, my dissertation work was in algebraic topology. Um, but I have to say, I haven't really done much with that since getting my PhD. Once once I became a faculty member, I decided to switch into mathematics education. So I focused more since then on various math ed projects, uh, ranging from textbook analysis, looking at abstract algebra textbooks, to how do students in an online class use cheat sheets or crib notes for a test. Um, I've also done a lot of work in the scholarship of teaching and learning, SOTL, uh, especially related to active learning, and that's that's connected to this book. Um, and yeah, so my, my scholarship has been related to math, kind of moving beyond pure mathematics. Um, but I've I've taught the range of math classes. I'm at Valparaiso University is a um, mid-sized liberal arts university, so I taught everything from quantitative analysis, kind of liberal arts to you know, abstract algebra and topology. I actually developed a topology class there. 
And I'm currently on a leave of absence at Valpo and working at the NSF in the Division of Undergraduate Education. I have a two-year position as a program director. Very cool. So let's get into the origin story of this book. Uh, first off, what motivated you to organize and assemble it? Yeah, I a long time ago, I don't remember exactly when, but at some point was at just a regional math conference and saw someone do a presentation on teaching using games. I think they, they were using Ticket to Ride as, as their game, but it motivated me to think about what are the, the board games or other games that I like? How could they be used to make math more fun for students, especially the students that aren't necessarily math majors and maybe don't think math is, is quite as fun? And so one of my favorite games is Carcassonne, which is a, a tile-based game where you build cities and get points and, and whatnot. And so I use that in a class called Finite Math, which is usually taken by business majors. It's usually their last math class they ever have to take. And by the time we get to the probability section of that class, it's a bit later in the semester, things start to drag. And so I bring in this game and we just work on basic probability problems um, through playing the game. So they get to play it, they do a worksheet, and it, it really breaks up the semester. And I've also used shoots and ladders to teach Markov chains in that class. Um, I'm not the first one to do that. Other people have published about Markov chains and shoots and ladders, so I pulled from their work. Uh, but that's also just uh, such an you know easy entry game. Most people have already played it, and, and it's a really different way to look at a difficult topic. Markov chains can be can be intimidating for you know students in finite math, and so that was my kind of entry into games. And I went from there, did some more work with Carcassonne, published in the College Mathematics Journal with one of my statistician colleagues where we went from basic probability to how could you use this to teach more advanced probability and statistics. Um, and then I realized after doing that article that there's not that much kind of out there in the literature um, or in books about using card games, board games, game, video games, whatever, to teach college level math. There's a lot for K-12. Um, but not that much for college level. And so I thought, all right, I can fill this gap. I love games and want to see what other people do. And so that was the motivation. And before I go into your call for con contributions, it occurs to me now to ask, you've spent some time digging into this literature. Is the literature on college level courses and the use of games? It's small, but is it coherent? Is it cohesive? Or is it kind of scattered and not really... Like it's kind of scattered. Like there's some games, like a card, the card game set, which is prevalent in mathematics, right? So many people have used set to maybe teach some proof-based math or, or other types of math. Uh, and there's been a lot of research projects into what mathematics are in that game. Um, and, so, and like I said, there's things like shoots and ladders, markup chains, but a lot of those are what 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 can we see about the math in the game rather than how can we use this to teach math? And so there wasn't very much in the, how do we actually use games to teach mathematics realm? Okay. Interesting. So yeah, this really is filling, um, you've carved out a new niche as well as, as well as pulling together some loose threads from the literature. Very cool. So yeah. So tell me about, um, putting out the call. What was your experience like? Who, who, how did you know whom to reach out to and what kind of response yeah. did you get? 
Yeah, it's it's a good question. I I mean, I'd never uh, written or edited a book before, so it was definitely a new experience for me. And the first thing I did was actually I submitted a book idea to the Mathematical Association of America, the MAA. They have just on their website, you can kind of fill out a form and submit an idea. And so I got some feedback from that. Well, this and they said, this is interesting, but we want to see if other people are interested in it. So I was told, okay, uh, organize a conference session at MathFest or the JMM, Joint Mathematics Meeting, and see if people attend, if people present in it. And, and so I did that. I, had a, I uh, co-organized a conference session at, uh, I think it was MathFest, on just letting people talk about teaching math using games. Um, and it was very well attended, luckily. And so then I followed up with the book people at the MAA and, and they suggested, okay, now actually get some sample chapters. I'm like, oh geez, I have to get sample chapters. So I had published a chapter in an, um, a volume of the MAA notes. That's one of the other series they have. And so I modeled it off of that experience. They had, they had made a Google site and people could submit abstracts through a Google form. And so I made a Google site for my book and you know, kind of put just a basic uh, description of what it would, you know, what it in, was intended to include, and what sort of chapters I was looking for. And I used math community listservs to solicit abstracts, and they submitted through this this Google form. And then from those abstracts, I selected some to then write sample chapters, and then full chapters, and then. That led to the 17 chapters. Very cool. Uh, did this process of submitting something, getting a response, saying this needs to be done and so forth, was it pretty clear from the MAA that this was a good idea and they would follow through with it if you cleared these hurdles? There were no guarantees. Um, and so kind of along the way, I had to tell, especially the authors that were bothering to you know, write a whole chapter, you know, even if it doesn't work here, you, we can use this somewhere else, or you could submit it somewhere else. There's other outlets, so it's not just a wasted you know, experience. Um, so I was encouraged by the MA, but there were no guarantees. And part of this also was they decided to that it was appropriate for the classroom, classroom Resources Materials series. And that series is edited by an MAA committee of about, I think it's like 10-ish people. Um, and so even after I had a full draft of the book, I had to take it to this committee that served as a board of reviewers and they could decide, no, this isn't, this isn't appropriate or we don't think this is going to sell or whatever. Um, and so it was, it was kind of a little nerve wracking to keep going so far into the process until it was the second round of reviews before I was finally given the, yeah, we're, we're going to do this. Uh, for sure, and, and you know, started signing contracts and stuff. But I, I figured, you know, even if it didn't work out with the MAA, I would have tried some other publishing agency. Well, congratulations on making it through, and congratulations to the uh, committee for making such a good selection. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So, how would you how would you pitch this book to potential readers and potential potential instructors? Uh, and maybe even um, standalone students. Who are the target audience or audiences for this book? And maybe a word in there about how you've had the chapters organized fairly consistently throughout. 
Yeah, I would say the target audience is college math instructors pretty much at any level. Um, as you mentioned in the beginning, there's there's really a quite a variety of, of topics and courses that are touched on in this book. But I do think it could be used by high school math instructors, um, you know, graduate level math instructors. It It's pretty versatile. And I've it could also be used by students who are just interested in how, you know, looking at math through a, the lens of a game. Um, but it's more intended for teachers to use in their classes. And so because the book is, the chapters are so varied in terms of their the types of games and types of math material, I put in a few roadmaps at the beginning of the book where I outlined depending on what course you're teaching, you know, here are chapters that could be useful. Depending on what specific math topic you're interested in, in looking at, here are the chapters that are useful. Or even how much time can you devote to an activity, here are the chapters that are useful. Because the activities can go from, you know, part of a class period to a semester-long project. Uh, and so there's, there's really kind of a little bit for everyone in this. Um, it's, it, it hopefully could be useful and inspire a lot of a lot of different instruct instructors of math or statistics or related mathematical sciences. So I want to dive into the content somewhat. Now we can't go through all 17 chapters. So I've picked out, I think, six that mm -hmm. um, hopefully we can talk through just a few minutes at a time. And I want to begin where the book does with an in-class project based on tic-tac-toe contributed by Axel Brandt. Yes. I'll have to ask you for confirmation of my pronunciations of the contributors' <laughs> names. I apologize for any scripts in advance. I'm not great with pronunciation, so I'll do my best to. Thanks. So let's assume that listeners are familiar uh, or can familiarize themselves with the classical game of tic-tac-toe. Mm -hmm. Could you talk me through the sequence of activities that uh, that Brandt la lays out here? Yeah. Yeah, I liked starting the book with this one because it is such a familiar game. And it, I do have the chapter somewhat progressing along kind of level of difficulty in mathematics or going from lower level to upper level, although it's not a, a linear progression. Um, but this is this is kind of an entry level thing. It's not a super time intensive exercise, I think, so it'd be easy to implement. Um, and basically the author, well, he used the game in a math for liberal arts class, so that was a setting, but it could be used in an abstract algebra class that looks at isomorphisms or any sort of class that's kind of looking at these like sameness of ideas. Um, and this is one of the chapters that has supplementary materials that you mentioned. So there's worksheets associated with it. But even within the chapter, the author really outlines, and all the chapters have this outline of, here's the background for the game if, if needed. Here's how to set it up, how to implement it, and then kind of future directions. So the, the implementing part, assuming that people know tic-tac-toe, the implementing starts with a hook. The author describes a hook to engage students. And this hook is he can predict what's going to happen in a tic-tac-toe game. And he shows the students how this, the, the, that he's able to predict the future, if you will. And so it makes them start wondering, well, how does that work? And so this is it's a great way to, to introduce a game in a math class. And then it also brings in inquiry-oriented activities, inquiry-based teaching, which I'm a big fan of, where students are asked to brainstorm, you know, how would you 
measure or quantify the strength of a, one of the squares in a tic-tac-toe game, like, like where the middle square might have a higher strength or a higher score because you could win more ways with it. And so the students get to play around with that, that idea. And then you shift to a different but similar game that uses playing cards. And you have to figure out how do you get three cards whose sum is 15? And the students are asked, how would you quantify the strength of a card? You know, maybe there's multiple ways to get to 15 with it compared to other cards. And then they eventually are kind of led to this realization that it's, it's like the same game, just, you know, with different ways of presenting it. And so there's no proof of this in the chapter which I, I kind of like here because really you want, you want the students to, to think through the why of this, the why are these the same? How can we convince other people that these are the same? Um, and you could have a different level of rigor for you know, math or liberal arts versus if you were teaching this in abstract algebra, um, but you leave it up to the students. And, and you can even connect this to high school mathematics where you start talking about symmetries and reflections and stuff so you're, you're bringing up math that they've seen before so there's there's a you know for such a simple game like tic-tac-toe there's so much that we can do with it that could be interesting to students something i've heard in several instances uh i don't teach myself but um of in, of discussions of active learning is the 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 way students will propose ideas uh debate ideas feed off of each other's ideas and i, I love to see that happen in several of the chapters on the on the uh, experiences recounted by the authors so uh, i think this was included in that right there was some there was a, a short narrative of of that kind of interplay um so I'm going to jump far ahead to uh, chapter 13, uh, which is uh, one of the, again, with the caveat that I, I can't, I don't use these in my, in, in classes, at, at least not at this point in my career, uh, mathematical communication games. Um, this was by, let's see, Caleb Lyman and Marie Meyer. Great. Uh, a variation on telestrations, which was a new word for me, um, a hybrid of telephone and Pictionary in which players alternate along a chain in two groups, drawing a picture that represents a certain word and then guessing the word that the picture represents uh, until you reach the end of each chain and we see who pre better preserved the original word. Um, so... They have a couple of variations in this chapter, and I hoped you could talk through one of them. Yeah. Or both, if you, if you really feel compelled to. <laughs> I picked a, I, I have a couple in mind, that, and they, they included more examples um, from college algebra to advanced math. But oh, one of right, the ex examples that I think is really fun is from discrete math, which can involve have, taking statements, sentences that have a truth value. They're either true or false. And transitioning those statements between sentence, you know, word form, and symbolic logic form. And so you could give the students a sentence in kind of our normal English words, tell them to tell the first student to then write it symbolically. And then the next student might need to negate that. And then the next student has to take it back to the sentence form. So convert it back from symbolic to sentence. And you know, does it still retain its meaning, or in this case, the negation of its original meaning through these different transitions. Um, and another example was from calculus, where you could take a function and then tell a student to take its derivative, and then the next student will take its antiderivative, and you know, do you get back to the original function? Uh, and so it's, it's a 
a fun way to um, kind of tackle things that could be really dry tasks. Like if I just told students, here's a worksheet of sentences, write them symbolically. That's, that's not exactly the most fun activity unless you're like me and are just super into logic and math. Uh, but this is a way to make it collaborative and, and fun and engaging. Yeah, it struck me as, as surprisingly clear and I surprisingly clear and simple of an idea. And I never practiced processes or procedures in mathematics that way. And it kind of surprises me that, that I haven't. And I think that this idea in particular is one that people could use in so many different ways. It's not specific to calculus or discrete math. There's so many topics in math that that you could use this for. And so a lot of the ideas in this book aren't necessarily, they don't, they don't have to be taken as is. They're, they're more meant to inspire someone to think about how could I, how would I want to use this in my class? Maybe do my own spin on it. Yeah, actually, well, I think we, uh, we should touch on that in uh, a later discussion that I definitely wanted to get to from chapter 11. But first, uh, let me ask about one of the another earlier chapter, Game Changers by Vivian Lim. Um, this is a more involved um, exercise. And so feel free to take a little extra time on it. Um, Lim contributed an, uh, an intensive sequence of simulation games, which begins with something called Fantasy Forest. So could you describe that game as proposed and then see a bit how she oh, proceeds from math. there? Yeah. Yeah, this one was, this this chapter was kind of one that wasn't like the others in a lot of ways, but it's one, one of my favorites because of how different it was. So the Fantasy Forest game, it's kind of like your typical cardboard game where it's set in a fantasy realm. You're trying to travel places and so maybe to go over a bridge maybe you have to pay a toll or something and you encounter trolls and and you're trying to find food or resources but then there's a risk that you might get a poisonous mushroom and and then maybe you get a healing potion that can help with your health and stuff like that so it's got kind of the the typical you know game components um but the spin on this is she has, so this was used in a kind of quantitative analysis class in a community college in New York City, so an urban setting. And the, the students would take this fantasy forest foundation, but kind of transfer it to kind of a social justice setting. We're looking at inequities and in just our structure of the society. And so like you'd have those bridges and troll tolls, and that's like subway fees and enforcement officials. Or foraging for mushrooms is like having to deal with food insecurity and healing potions or like hospital bills. And so it's connecting to these things that are real life for the students that, that they're having to deal with in, in their adult lives and their families are dealing with. And the students actually do some research. They research systems in the city, transportation, nutrition, healthcare, criminal justice. You can also go to jail in the game. Um, and they translate the Fantasy Forest game into their own game with these kind of new rules and mechanics. And they develop a set of character cards that uh, show the varying attributes of the demographics of their city, which is New York City. So you're 
could have a character that's maybe a Hispanic female or a character that's a black male and you know you, you show the different demographics and and they have to in their final assignment write proposals to change or reform the systems in response to inequalities that are surfaced during gameplay. So this one this this game was a little it's a little riskier because it touches on things that can be sensitive topics but recommendations that are coming from the Mathematical Association of America and, and a lot of research that's being done on math, the teaching and learning of math, are looking at how we should bring in social justice issues. Culturally relevant pedagogy is kind of a big idea right now where we need to show students that math is real and that we recognize what's really going on in their lives and backgrounds. And so I thought it, it really touched on something that's timely in, in the math community right now. In, in addition to, to honing students' quantitative reasoning skills, this chapter, or the, the, the activities laid out in this chapter, also hones, um, seems like it would hone students, um, I mean, not, not just ability to research policy, but sort of to engage civically in their society. And I wonder in general if that was, so there's a few other chapters that, that do something similar, not specifically with respect to policy, but these are ways of, some of these chapters seem like ways of uniting a mathematics curriculum with other aspects of the university curriculum. And I wonder if you want to, if you want to say something in general about that. Yeah, I think what we're realizing is we don't want disciplines to be siloed or math to seem like uh, this kind of old standalone subject that's, that's not, changing or relevant to a lot of other things. Um, and so, you know, part of what this book does is just make math more fun. At least in my view, it makes more, math more fun. But part of what it can do is push students to think about math in ways that they maybe hadn't before, or at least, you know, once they got to maybe the calculus level or something like that, and it's a lot of plug and chug or just computation, um, that maybe it's encouraging them to think about how else could we view this or use it. Um, and it also hopefully inspires math instructors to think about, you know, how, how can I show math to students in a way that isn't just take a bunch of derivatives or, you know, do some proofs of theorems if it's an upper level class. You know, maybe we can connect it to something that's, that's more relevant. Does that answer your question? Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I I couldn't help but notice that the the gameplay is similar to some like the occasional policy sim simulation exercise that I read about in news. Like you know, a bunch of a bunch of policymakers and experts and other people got together and did this simulation to sort of learn what sort of contingencies they would have to prepare for. And it seems like this kind of education on, or this kind of curriculum within an education could be could really help contribute to the well-functioning of a society in, in addition to giving citizens, you know, the incentive and the, and the, and the know-how to go in and, and make themselves heard and involved actual policymakers themselves would benefit from this kind of training. And these kinds of things are not that common as I understand it, at least not at the local level. I, yeah, I think, I, in, I think there's a lot of ways people can get involved in policymaking and I don't know how many of those paths would go through the sort of activities that this this chapter or this book would inspire that, that make you think about the problem-solving skills or thinking outside the box. Um, you know, we want we want a, a STEM literate society, right? Where whether it's policymakers or the general public, you want people that can understand the graphs that they're seeing in the news or the data that's coming out about a pandemic or, you know, whatever. And when, when you approach teaching math in a way that's, that's maybe not typical, not just straight kind of lecture, lecture the topics, that's going to allow for more of developing the connections and people getting more hopefully out of their STEM, you know, math stats, classes that they'll they'll then use in their regular day-to-day -day lives. Sure, well said. All right, um, so I'm going to jump to chapter, uh, far ahead again, to chapter 16, uh, Bandits on a Wall. Um, so I was honestly not expecting one of the game-driven lessons in this book to tackle group actions, which is really cool. Um, it's adapted from a game called Japanese Ladders, uh, which was new to me, but fairly easy to describe. Um, so could we talk through that uh, that game first? Yeah, so Japanese ladders, at least as it's described, because I wasn't familiar with the game before this either, but it, it, as it's described in this chapter, you have these, in the chapter they're called masked bandits. So it's kind of just little figures that have a different colored mask. Um, and they're on a ladder that has two vertical lines. And then the goal is to put in rungs on the ladder, so horizontal lines, um, that once the bandits, as they're going down or up the ladder and they encounter a rung, they have to change position. So maybe they flip upside down, maybe they rotate backwards or maybe both. And so you can label the rungs like B for backwards if they're gonna go backwards or U for upside down. And, and then you'll see the little bandits flipping around and moving around. And so the, the game is actually, you know, if you have bandits kind of just positioned normally at the top of the ladder, but then they're in a different position at the bottom, how do you position the rungs to get them into that different position? So you could have one bandit on the ladder, two, three, however many, um, but you have to put in the rungs that cause them to do different actions. And that's the connection to group actions, right? The, the ladders are, are illustrating how the symmetric group acts on a collection of bandits by permuting their positions. That's a really fun way of, of looking at group, group actions, which I know the first time I saw them, I was kind of just like, I don't, I don't really get this. 
So this, so this is the original Japanese ladders, right? So we don't worry about the orientation of the bandits. We have these bandits with different colored masks, and the order in which they're arranged is what you have to solve for to the end. And so you do that by virtue of these adjacent transpositions encoded as rungs between uh, adjacent handles of the of ladder, I guess, right? Um, and so the, 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 they build on this um, idea by combining that the action of the symmetric group or overlaying the action of the symmetric group with the action of another group that controls how each ladder tells the bandits that cross it to change orientation. And I didn't get, honestly, I didn't guess the group before I continued reading into the, yeah, <laughs> into the discussion. Yeah. Right. Right. So they got to it before <laughs> I figured it out, but, um, but yeah, they, they, they describe some additional things you could do if you wanted to get more, if you wanted to speak to a more advanced classroom by adding arrowed ladders with inverse operations, depending on which way the bandits are moving. Um, so yeah. Um, one thing this chapter did was set up a way, set up an opportunity for, or what it did exceptionally well, which several chapters did, was uh, set up opportunities for students to ask uh, fairly detailed questions and then make their own conjectures about how um, uh, a game would 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 uh, would proceed, or in this case, whether or not a certain ending configuration was solvable or was achievable uh, based on a starting configuration. And so, do you want to maybe speak to that general trend? Yeah, they, they definitely pose the question of, you know, depending on the, the end configuration, does every round of bandits on a wall have a solution? And, and they do answer this in the chapter. They say, no, it, you can certainly create some that don't have solutions. But the fun thing is to have students construct an unsolvable puzzle and then even think about which games would have a solution or not. Can you classify or, or kind of develop a theorem or conjecture um, for how you would know whether there's going to be a solution or not. And so it's, it would really be pushing students to, to start generalizing something. Um, and there's even more investigations like, well, what, what if you looked at abelian or commutative versus non-abelian and, and considerations like that that I think are fun. All right. So I now want to jump to uh, the last chapter, 17, um, get in the song. Song? Son? Son. My, my student came <laughs> up with the name. So, uh, yeah, I would say get in the zone. Supposed to be like zone. Oh, like zone. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So I only I only played Carcassonne for the first time this past weekend. A partner of mine is an avid gamer, and I was staying with her for the weekend. And, yeah, so I she had a copy. We played a, a round. And, yeah, um, it to sort of preempt the discussion, it does make, use of a certain kind of topological agility when you're choosing how to play tiles and who, how, what impact that's going to have several rounds later. Um, so yeah, maybe take us through um, uh, how this chapter came into existence and then how it, what the actual mathematics of it are. Sure. Yeah. And this chapter is kind of different from the other. I, I don't know. They all have their own take, but this one was different in that it focused on um, an undergraduate research project rather than kind of a, a course-based activity or project. And so you know, I mentioned I, I've used Carcassonne in finite math to teach basic probability, and I've, I've written about using it to teach probability and statistics. Um, but 
In this particular project, I had a, an undergraduate student who was interested in doing research with games, because I think in part because he knew I liked that, but also in learning some about abstract algebra and topology. And he had not had those classes yet. So this was before his, I think it was senior year, when he was going to take those classes. Um, and so we were looking at Carcassonne through the lenses, first of abstract algebra and then topology, which uh, with abstract algebra, we were trying to figure out, you know, could we, could we find basically a, a group um, in, in Carcassonne, if we, if we were to define uh, the, the operation on playing tiles in a certain way or describe how the set of tiles, um, what, how that could be interpreted. And we did, we, we ended up finding the group of just like the integers and so it wasn't super interesting. So then we thought, okay, let's go to topology. Because like you said, there, there's definitely topological aspects here. Part of topology is thinking about, it's not really the particular shape or layout of something that matters. You know, you can morph something around and it could still basically be the same thing. There's, a, there's the typical topology joke about um, a donut being the same as a coffee mug because they both have a hole in them, right? And so in Carcassonne, you're building these cities, and the particular outline of a city doesn't matter that much. It's more what's inside it, um, or sometimes where you place uh, people in the game, meeples, um, that can really determine things. And so we started looking at, you know, if you really try to generalize Carcassonne, because is a lot of generalizing, you know, how, how could we define unioning pieces? Is that like playing them together or intersecting pieces? What would that mean? Um, and so we kind of just played with different ways of, of applying those definitions to the game and, and had some fun with the results. And so this chapter was in part about Carcassonne and part about just sometimes research projects don't go the direction you want and what do you do with that? No, it, it it I could I can see the uh, in the chapter some of the the oh well kind of response to how something just didn't play out the way it might have or the way it was expected, but it was a, a valuable exploration and that that research projects often end up that way is in some ways just as important a lesson for a student to get right if they're interested in going into a research career. Yeah, yeah, I I very much agree with that. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's look at chapter 11. This is another unique chapter, I think, Learning Graph Theory by Designing Games. Um, this chapter focuses not on gameplay, but as its title suggests, on game design. Um, Friyal Alayon? Uh, Alayon, I think, yeah. Alayon? I'm, I'm not sure what, what, so. how to recognize French, mm -hmm. but... And David Clark? Mm-hmm contributed uh, this chapter on a semester-long curriculum developed for teacher preparation programs. So could you speak to how this different setting inspired their approach, as well as a bit about what their approach entailed? Yeah, it, like, like I kind of indicated there, the book as a whole is, is mostly about inspiring math instructors to bring games, use games in their teaching. But this chapter is actually detailing how to teach pre-service teachers to create math-inspired games. I think it was for middle school students. And they actually have like a math night with middle schoolers that, and they test out the games and actually get to use them. And so 
it's instead of being a chapter directly applying the games and gameplay, it's it's really how do you develop a project that will inspire other future teachers to bring math games into their teacher, teaching. So I thought it still fit into the book for that reason. Um, and I liked that it was, it was a really, it was, it's a long-term project and it did a really great job of describing the scaffolding of check-in points for the students in this project process. Since it's a long-term project, they, they describe, um, you know, here's where we check in early in the semester and where they're, you know, where, where they're supposed to be later on and, and maybe issues that they encountered and dealt with. And I think this is another one that has supplementary materials as well. Um, but it, it's not just a chapter to tell you about a game, but it's a, it's a great way of thinking about other ways we can use math in our teaching. Would you be able to maybe talk through one of the examples they showcase from one of their their one of their students who themselves was a teacher in training? Um, they did include a couple of specific examples, and and had some pictures with those, which is always nice. Um, I'm there was one where the the students like built this three dimensional. Um, three-dimensional object, but I can't remember exactly what, what math that built on. I think it's been too long since I, I looked yeah, at Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm pulling this out of, out of the blue. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the, I'm looking in the chapter now. So let, they, they discuss a separate project, um, a related project. Monkeys in the Jungle was the game a student that was created. That's what I was thinking of. Monkeys in the Jungle... Which is a way of encoding or mm -hmm. addressing or introducing the topic of rook, rook placements mm -hmm. in 3D, I think. Yeah, yeah. They they had the, it was an honors thesis project modeling these three-dimensional non-attacking rook placements. Um, and they had another project that was a little simpler. It's more of just a board game where it was called Medieval Math Madness. And so the, the student created just this board with a, a blacksmith and a bakery and a church and apothecary. And the students are, are going through the board um, on specific paths. And so it's about, uh, this, this, this class was related to graph theory. So the games were involving paths and graphs and that kind of thing. Um, and so they showcased in the chapter I think a nice variety where you had this kind of simple layout all the way to this this three-dimensional really interesting picture of a of student work um but it was yeah it was graph theory based yeah um something that struck me when reading it was that students seemed to be seemed to enjoy the curriculum because it felt more relevant to their mm -hmm. interests and careers which i mean you've already said this in detail but the idea of use of having coursework in teacher prep programs involve mm -hmm. developing games for students to play as a way of introducing them to a topic makes a whole lot of sense. And it's really cool yeah. to see that. Yeah, if you, did, here. You know, if you put teacher prep students, math education students in a graph theory class, and they were just learning graph theory, that's valuable. I mean, they're still going to learn some great math. But 
we often talk about what it, how it's hard for future teachers to make the connection between upper level math like graph theory, abstract algebra, or whatever uh, analysis and teaching, you know, geometry or algebra in high school, middle school, or calculus in high school. And so it's nice to have this project where not only do they get to brainstorm how the, this new upper level math could connect to something fun for, for middle schoolers, but they actually actually got to actually implement it and see it in action, which I think is, is a critical piece there, that they're getting that, that value added by actually getting to see middle school students have fun with the games. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know if we actually hit that hit upon that. Could you say a bit about how the semester ended? Yeah, the the authors have to do a lot of kind of logistic work, but they they connect with one of the middle local middle schools, and they actually have a game night at the at the school or at the university. And so, you know, this the the undergrad students get off a day of class because they're having to come for this extra period, but then they they connect with middle school students and they actually test out their games. Um, I think they've tested them out with each other in kind of a peer setting in the class to make sure things work right, but then they actually get to have middle school students try the games and they they can see you know how how effective it is and how fun they are and it seems to be a really successful endeavor for both the the students and the instructors of this course. I really enjoyed reading that part. So let's begin to wrap down. Um, the book has only been out eh, a short while, but but a year or more. Mm-hmm. Um, could you say anything about how these lessons have been adopted and adapted in that time? Mm-hmm. Or have you gotten feedback to that effect? I definitely heard from people in the month, the months immediately after it came out, uh, you know, asking for maybe more information about a, a chapter or, you know, asking about the supplementary materials. And so I could tell that, that there was interest in it. I think one of the nice things about this book is each chapter at the end of it has a blurb about the authors. And so you can also reach, someone could reach directly out, reach out directly to the author of a chapter for a game they might be interested in, in trying to use um, and, and get that, you know, kind of more directed feedback or involvement. Um, so I, I think it's been well received. I, I hope authors have heard things too, but yeah. Cool. So um, let me uh, take my two concluding questions. Uh, first, is there a piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to this book? Yeah, I think so the, the MEA has put out an instructional practices guide. That's, that's a few years old now. But it, it's this really great kind of document pamphlet guide that talks about things like active learning and how to engage students in collaborative uh, class projects and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like that really complements the ideas of this book. Um, and... It's not media, but maybe related to scholarship. Um, there's a, a conference, a meeting called Gathering for Gardener um, that's for recreational mathematics. And so I think that's that's a related kind of 
community and, and math um, to what the game emphasis in this book. Yeah, it's an open-ended question, and that's a great response, actually. I will definitely link to, um, is it Gathering for Gardner? Yeah, Gathering, and then it's the number four, and then Gardner. Gardner was a prominent mathematician who was super into you know games and recreational math. Yes, uh, like many mathematicians, I had uh, one or more of his books as a kid, or yeah. access to. Um, so you've got this book out. It's been out for a while. What are you working on now? In particular, are any other book links projects in the works? No books. Um, I was kind of wrapping up several projects right before coming to the NSF. So one of them was the book. I also was had finished up a, a grant project on food and housing insecurities of college students. So it was kind of not math related. I went a different direction for a bit um, and uh, similarly I've recently published about a grant program that centers around giving scholarships to low-income STEM students um, that I was a co-PI on, and and that program was for undergraduate, or it focused on undergraduate research. The publication was about the benefits of undergrad research, um, and then once I came to the NSF, I kind of was uh, wrapped up those projects and I focused on this this new position. I'm now a co-lead for the program that was the scholarship program uh, here at the NSF. And so that's been pretty awesome. Yeah, congratulations. Um, I look forward to hearing about your future work, whatever it entails. And um, I'll wind down uh, by reminding listeners that I've been talking with Mindy Capaldi, editor of Teaching Mathematics Through Games, published in 2020 by the MAA Press. Mindy, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you.